Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Poet Christian Butterfield said, You learn about yourself writing poetry. You develop as a person writing poetry. And I think that's the coolest aspect of poetry by a landslide. Butterfield, a senior at Bowling Green High School, is finishing up a year as one of only five high school students in the nation who were named a National Student Poet, the country's highest honor for young poets showcasing original work. The National Student Poets were selected from students in 10th and 11th grades who submitted more than 20,000 pieces for the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. I talked with Christian about his year as a National Student Poet and how writing poetry is an important part of his young life. Christian, welcome to Think Humanities Podcast. Hi! It's so good to have you uh, with me today. We're recording this at Bowling Green High School, Christian's uh, high school in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, Christian, uh, what an honor uh, to be one of only five student poets uh, recognized for your ability and your talent in the entire United States, and you're the first uh, and, of course, only one from Kentucky. Yeah, it's been such an honor. Um, Being a national student poet is something I never would have expected to be coming into this process, submitting to the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. And so just to know that I am one and I'm a national student poet and I get to do so many cool things this year has just been such a whirlwind. Christian, tell me about the process that you went through uh, to uh, first apply when you uh, discovered uh, the flyer that you saw and uh, who urged you to apply. Tell me a little bit about uh, a, a year, a year and a half ago. Yeah, so it was about a year ago, actually. Um, so in case listeners don't know, the National Student Poets Program is run through the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, which is the largest um, national art and writing awards program. Um, and I didn't really know too much about it. There was a flyer for it in our school's hallway, um, and it said, submit your writing here. And I never submitted my writing anywhere. I thought it'd be cool. And so there really wasn't like a person who urged me to submit. I saw the flyer and I said, yes, I like poetry. They're going to see my poems. Because the really cool thing about it is that prior, I had never shared my poetry month much. Like I had always written poetry at home on a piece of loose leaf paper and then kind of lost it later. I don't know, just kind of letting it ethereally go into the wind or whatever. And so I never actually uh, recorded or wrote down on like a Google Doc any of my poetry until I submitted, which was such a cool process because I got to kind of refine my work more and make it something that I was really, truly proud of, not just in one moment, but for like a while, which was so cool. Um, And then I submitted this Scholastic Art and Writing Awards and I wasn't expecting much. I was just like, it's a fun poem about like, a mythological creature, it'll be fine, maybe get like a small award. But then I got more than a small award, which was fun. Um, So the way Scholastic works, there is a regional program where you can win a gold key. So in about a third of Kentucky, they pick the top 10% of juniors writing poetry and they give you a gold key, which is great. And so then those gold key award winners are sent off to national judging, where the top 10% of those award winners are given gold medals and the nation, which I earned a gold medal in poetry and a silver medal in personal memoir, and I was just flabbergasted. I had no idea my work was that solid. I had no idea that I deserved to earn something like that, but 
I, I got a gold medal for it. And so from there, um, Scholastic takes all of the juniors and sophomores who have won gold or silver medals, and they ask them to submit more work, or they pick a selection of them and ask them to submit some more work. So they sent me um, some information asking for um, a couple extra poems and some videos of me reading my poetry, which was super cool, and I sent the videos in, and then it was sent to the National Student Poets Judging Panel, which is crazy. Um, it contains people like Billy Collins and Ilya Kaminsky and Juan Felipe Herrera, who all agreed after reading my work that it was really good, which is a fun fact that I've still not gotten over how cool it is because, wow, you know, Billy Collins and Ilya Kaminsky and Juan Felipe Herrera saw my work and thought like, yes, that's talent. And I was like, whoa, I'm still like, whoa. Well, let me ask you this. In uh, here in school or at home, you said you really weren't writing that much poetry at the time. Were you uh, interested in other writing? Uh, were you writing? You said you submitted uh, personal memoir. Were you writing uh, narrative prose? Uh, and and the poetry is uh, sort of late to the game. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of writing everything. I mean, I think middle school and under, I kind of started off as a reader more than I was a writer. I remember I would just, like, stalk my school's library, reading every, like, young adult dystopian lit book I could. Um, and I feel like from there, I kind of picked up a lot of personal memoirist kind of stuff. And so when I was submitting to Scholastic, I was actually, like, most into, like, the personal memoir stuff I wrote. I remember I wrote this piece called Dear Kurt Hummel, I Hate You, about, like, um queer mythology and like the cash show in San Francisco and I was all proud of it um and so poetry was kind of like a stress relief almost you know it was something that I would write when I wanted to kind of write something short for inspiration um and just the more and more I did it the more I realized that I love it and that's something that I kind of want to pursue more and more but I'm really grateful for my experience as a memoirist because I feel like they go hand in hand I feel like some of the best poems tell a narrative they just tell it a lot more abstractly than a piece of prose does mm -hmm. and so having some background in like narrative and having just kind of putting all your your hand in every cookie jar of writing I feel like is really important and it's something that I'm really glad I did. Do you think writing um, narrative uh, writing the memoir helped you be a better poet or did poetry help you be a better uh, narrative writer? I think it's cheating to say both, and yet my answer is still both. Um, I think that they go hand in hand really well. I think that um, narratives te teach you how to build a compelling story, and I feel like poetry teaches you economy of language and word choice, and I feel like those two together can really kind of help each other. And I feel like if you're doing well in one type of writing, those skills are going to go to any other type. Like, even the stuff I do with poetry, it makes the essays I write for a class and like anything I write that's analytical or argumentative that much stronger. Your submission and the work that you did, how long did it take you from the time that you sent that off until you were notified that you were going to be a regional winner? <laughs> okay, so um, this is actually a funny story. So the stuff that I wrote for Scholastic, I wrote in about a month. Um, I remember I, I was up at like five o'clock in the morning and I had this idea to write about like Sandro Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. And then I just kind of wrote it and I went from there. And so I had my Scholastic submission that I won a gold medal for. And then afterwards, um, they asked me for more poetry. However, as I said before, I've not been like saving and collating my poetry for a very long time. Um, I the Scholastic submissions was the first time I like ever saved some poetry. So I think Scholastic on their end was expecting me to have like a list of poems that I can kind of just like pick through and pick my best. That was not the case. 
I had like a week and a half to write like three new poems to submit to Scholastic. And so every day I was just typing away, just like in, I remember I was in like AP Lang and I told my teacher, I have to write. And he was like, okay. Um, and from there, I came out with three really nice poems that I'm really proud of. And those were what allowed me to become a national student poet, which is super cool. Why don't we uh, take a pause here and, and let you uh, read one of those that you submitted uh, on your application and uh, tell me about uh, uh, the title, uh, tell me uh, what your thoughts are behind it, and then read just a, a small portion of it, if not all of it. That's fine. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, so the title is Lullaby. Um, and so one thing about me that not many people know is that I am on the autism spectrum. Um, it's really cool. Like doctors at the age of two didn't project that I would be able to talk ever. Um, and now I'm standing up and delivering poems to a lot of people, which is a really cool journey. Um, but it's also kind of hard to write about um, being on the autism spectrum, especially as somebody who is kind of in that weird flux zone of being simultaneously like affected by autism and something that kind of like stays in their head from day to day. I mean, it's you're ne you never get rid of autism. It's not something that can be cured. But someone who like is neurotypical enough or kind of fits in enough that like it's not particularly visible to other people. And so that kind of conversation about kind of owning that part of your identity versus putting it away, you know, because like as an autistic person, there's both a pressure to like not be autistic and be neurotypical enough to be like passing in society and have other people like not realize that's entire thing. But there's also a simultaneous like thing where I have to kind of be an inspiration to other people with autism and be a part of that community. And both are things that I really love doing and want to do. And so it's kind of hard, especially as just like an insecure like 17 year old to kind of find that balance. And so a lot of times when I have trouble finding balances in my life, I try to kind of rectify it through poetry or discover more about how I'm feeling through poetry. And I feel like this poem is a really kind of honest reflection of how I kind of deal with having autism and being a non-neurotypical person. Uh, one of the uh, articles that I read um, has this uh, sentence in it, as a non-neurotypical poet, much of Christian's life has revolved around struggles with communication and thus all of his poetry, whether it centers around the themes of sexuality, illness, or community, shares one goal, to empower the voices of both themselves and those around him. So that's really been your, your purpose since you you learned uh, or and earned this uh this power of the written word and being able to express yourself it, early on in your life is this what um, is this what it led to that you were able to communicate more effectively through writing than you were communicating I, I think so yeah I think I've always been a bookish kind of person I very vividly remember I was like five years old I was in like a thrift store like sobbing because I couldn't buy like every single Barney book available mm -hmm. like I've been a bookish person my entire life and I just feel like it's a lot easier to kind of take some time and express yourself through writing than it is in a normal day-to-day -day conversation and I mean I love a good normal day-to-day -day conversation I'm here talking now um but I feel like Sometimes it's kind of hard to give yourself permission to express yourself, you know? It's hard to know exactly what to say. It's hard to know exactly what you need. Um, but when you're writing, it gives you a chance to kind of think critically, slow down, and kind of like revise your own reaction to your own thoughts, you know? Because I think before I started writing poetry about being autistic, lullaby being the major one of them, I think my 
identity as an autistic person is something that I kind of wanted to shy away from. Nobody, nobody around me could really tell that I was autistic and I was really content to let it be that way. Um, and I think after writing it, it became something a little bit more nuanced, you know? Being autistic is something that I kind of own a little bit more now. And I feel like I constantly find little tidbits and facts and things I can grow um, within myself through writing poetry. Like every poetry, every good poem for me is like a realization, I feel. So, and I feel like this poem especially is one of the first big realizations I well, had. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. What, what do you exactly mean by uh, realizing that this poem and other poems are a realization? Yeah, so I think that um, a lot of times we kind of have some like kind of subconscious thoughts or biases or we're feeling some kind of way about something, but we don't like know how to consciously express it. We don't know how to put it in words and thus we can't really internalize that thought and make ourselves aware of it. Like the fact that I was like kind of hesitant to embrace the autistic part of my identity wasn't something that I was actively thinking in my head. I don't want to seem autistic. I don't want to do this or that, right? I wasn't like actively thinking that a lot it was just something that kind of lingered in the background, like as kind of an assumption I made without even thinking about it. However, when I wrote this poem, it forced me to confront that line of thinking and it forced me to kind of reevaluate it. And so I, I feel like people, a lot of times people take poetry as this exercise for other people's, right? You're writing a poem so that another person will enjoy it. But I feel like the best poems, both for me and for other people, um, have been the poems where I kind of needed to work through something mm -hmm. and I worked through it on the page. Mm -hmm. So let's read uh, Lullaby by cool. Christian Butterfield. The first time ever I saw your face, I thought the sun rose in your eyes. Roberta Flack, 1972, sung via portable boombox in St. Mary's Hospital. My first sound was something gargled. Lullabies have always been wasted on me, so my mother just wrapped me in her arm. She was all tear-soaked wrists and an exhausted grin. We cried out together, clinging to a kinship. My third ever sentence was no ketchup. Hmm. My mother says this with a knowing grin, and I know nothing but utility. I had spent my life as a fork sands times, a bent knife, language, as a battering ram. My 486th conversation was an inexorable force of nature. My mother neatly informed me that my brain was wired differently. Now there is something to be said about lullabies, but I could only sleep wrapped up in my wires. My mother says it's a sensory thing. My 2000th 72nd reading was an act of attempted suicide. My mother did not speak to me in metaphor, but I was dedicated to mastering literary device. She could feel the explication on my breath. I thought she made quite a lot of fuss over a greeting, over a hi. My name's Christian and I have autism. My three millionth and somethingth poem was a breakthrough. In my lifetime, I have been half solved puzzle pieces and accounted conversation a miracle of early childhood intervention. Miracles have been my reason for existence. My literary context. It's a miracle that I am writing this poem. I am only 
a redemption story. My first lullaby will be dedicated to my mother. The first time ever she saw my face, there was nothing to redeem. No wires to uncross, no puzzle to solve, only tear-soaked wrists and an exhausted grin. We cry out together, and I am nothing but a son. Dear Mom, here is my lullaby. And the moon and the stars were the gifts you gave to the dark and endless skies. Roberta Flack, 1972, sung via tear-soaked wrists and glorious sacrifice. Our first song. Yeah, that's wonderful, Christian. Thank you. That's that's. Uh... It's quite touching. It's it's so personal, uh, emotional yeah. for you. Yeah, it's still kind of emotional to read. I mean, at a certain point, like, you, when you're writing, like, you don't really think too much about sharing the work. You just are kind of just, like, putting something out into the page. And so I think this is probably something very vulnerable about being autistic, you know, because it it is kind of multifaceted. Um, in a certain point, like, I feel like there's a lot of narratives about kind of like growing out of autism almost, you know, like you start off as nonverbal and now you are supposedly like this like great functioning member of society. And those narratives are important and necessary and amazing. And I'm glad I got to talk about that. But I feel like this kind of pressure to simultaneously be a redemption story and be more than a redemption story and kind of like not knowing how much to own your autism is something that I've really dealt a lot with. And it's something that's hard to verbalize. I feel like for a lot of people who are on the spectrum, but high functioning. And I feel like the fact that I was able to talk about that really just speaks to poetry's prescience on the whole. You know, I mean, as I was saying before, that was a conversation I wasn't able to have until I wrote it. It's like therapy, but for free. Mm -hmm. I love it. And it's really, <laughs> um, it's really uh, leads into uh, a thought uh, and a question that I had for you, but you've, you've partially answered it, is what does it mean to you to be a poet? It means to be proud of your own voice, I feel, or just be more than tolerant of it. You know, I feel like so often we have this, um, inability or distaste for kind of like sharing our emotions on a major level you know like that vulnerability is scary and when you couple it with poetry where there's this kind of like dominant idea that only like certain academics or certain really smart writerly people can be poets i feel like the act of writing a poem is almost like rebelliously personal you know i feel like it's really hard to kind of let yourself kind of like be in touch with your emotions and share them with other people you know, and so I feel like the act of writing a poem is something that really engenders um, connections with other people and connections with yourself. And that's why I really love it. You know, I feel like there are so many people who are kind of scared to try out poetry or scared to kind of get into it because it seems like this really complex, arduous task. It seems a little bit arbitrary sometimes to people. But really what I love about poetry is that there's nothing that demarcates a good poem or a great poem like there is in prose or a dramatic script, right? It's not like you have to have a thesis statement jammed in there. Mm -hmm. Really, a good poem is whatever you want it to be. A Tell me how you spent your year as um, the National Student Poet. Oh, it's it's been amazing. Um, 
So some highlights. At the beginning of the year, um, <coughs> we were inducted in Washington at the Smithsonian Museum for the American Indian, where we got to meet current poet laureate Joy Harjo, which was amazing. That's I, United States poet laureate yeah, Joy Harjo. Yeah, Joy Harjo. We yeah. got to meet her. It was amazing. And the best part about it was, so the five of us national student poets, we were all on stage, we all read our work, and then Joy Harjo comes up. And she reads this gorgeous poem, and then she talks a bit about it and she talks about herself and her work and gives some advice to us and then she says i would like to address the national student poets and the five of us are kind of expecting like a nice platitude some will kind of enjoy hearing um we got something so much better she went down the line individually and complimented each of our work joy harjo said christian butterfield you sing with joy to your ancestors and in that moment a part of my soul just bloomed like i was on stage just like thank you joy harjo <laughs> i was just so starstruck because like i've loved joy harjo for years and then all of a sudden the poet laureate's in front of me just like your work is great and i'm like wow that's the validation i needed thank yeah. you um and so after that um really it's been a lot of community service and outreach which is super super cool um some things i've done specifically with national student poets um in october i got to go down to um austin texas and uh be a part of a panel at the austin texas book festival about poetry and protest which is super cool because i think poetry and protest work so well together um i got to run workshops down in austin with um elementary schoolers and high schoolers which running a poetry workshop for elementary schoolers is like a spiritual experience i love it they simultaneously care so much about everything but don't care about everything and that mixture is just like the perfect thing for poetry they're like engaged i'm like make up a word and they're like yes i love it um and kind of leading off of that uh, the coolest thing i've gotten to do this year is just run a bunch of workshops i've run a lot of workshops in my home community i very recently ran workshops for the entirety of the eighth grade class at my junior high bowling green junior high which was super super cool just kind of getting go getting to go back to the place where i kind of started falling in love with writing and getting to tell a bunch of kids hey poetry's cool and then buying into it which is really nice what, um, what are the subjects of your writing workshops okay i have a whole little itinerary and i love it so the first thing i do is i ask all the people in my poetry workshops to describe themselves as an ice cream flavor and the fun thing about it is that it seems just kind of like banal and like kind of fun you know like you go into it I I ask that and they're like okay it's like a summer camp type of icebreaker and so then they're like i'm like strawberry ice cream because i'm sweet or a bunch of kids say they're like vanilla which is just kind of sad but you go with it um <laughs> and so then they all share and at the end of it you're like wow y'all just use metaphors like champs guess who are poets now you and they're like what and i'm like you're a poet and they're like oh cool um, and I think the really cool thing about being a national student poet is that you get to show people that poetry is so cool because I feel like, again, there's this really like pervasive notion that poetry can A, be kind of dry and uninteresting and B, can be so arbitrary and complex that like kids don't feel like they have a way in, you know? And even poetry that they do like, like say Rupi Kaur or like slam poetry, they find in like button poetry, they feel like is an exception from the norm and not that it can be the norm or something that they would be valid or successful successful in replicating or doing something similar to. Um, but like a lot of the workshops that I run kind of center around the fact that a lot of the way we communicate is inherently poetic. You know, we use um, words that are more than just like simple commands. We, um, 
we talk to each other and we have double meanings. We use metaphors and similes like all the time in our day-to-day -day lives. But the moments you tell students like, okay, write it down, they're like, I could never. Mm -hmm. Because really there's this pervasive notion that is just something they can't do. They think poetry is more than it is, it, that it's more academic, that it's more- Personal? Personal almost, yeah. They think that a lot of students sometimes think that the only things they can write poems about are like deeply personal things that would make somebody cry and then that's the only valid poem. And like while I've written my fair share of lullabies, I've also written like poems about like Danny DeVito. And <laughs> all of them I feel like have equal weight and merit. All of them kind of allow you to explore part of yourself, to understand more things about the universe. Just a lot of, any poem allows for self like reflection. They don't have to be inherently dark and negative. And I feel like sometimes students think, well, oh, I don't really have anything sad to write about. I guess I can't be a poet. And I'm like, girl, mm. yes, you can. <laughs> Who's your favorite poet? My favorite poet? Um, I'm a sucker for Jeanne Verlee. Um, and I think it was because she was the first poet who I ever um, encountered. So I actually do um, speech and debate. And there's an event in there called like poetry interpretation where you read other people's poetry, you splice it together and you um, like share it. And that's the first time that I really got into poetry because I saw like slam free verse poetry and I was like really attached to it. You know, it was the first time I'd really seen something like it. Um, that was in like probably eighth grade. And so I remember Jeanne Verlee was one of the first slam poets who I just kind of like kept on binge viewing, you mm -hmm. know? And so I just kind of have like an emotional attachment to her work now. Like I read every, anything I can read by Jeanne Verlee, I'm really excited about. I also really, really like Margaret Atwood. I feel like a lot of people know her more for outwork, for like mm -hmm. output of prose. And like, I love The Handmaid's Tale, mm -hmm. but I feel like her poetry is so so amazing i feel like having like a sardonic voice in your poetry is something that's it's a little hard to make kind of funny sardonic poems work like a lot of times you see poetry that's funny or lighthearted, and it veers on goofy which is fine i love goofy you know but <laughs> i feel like there's a large potential for um humor and sardonicness to really kind of like affect um, political or personal change, right? Like, I feel like if you can make somebody laugh, you can convince them of anything, right? And I feel like Margaret Atwood has this really, like, dry, sardonic, like, it's part humor, it's part warning, and I feel like that makes her poetry so, so, so effective. And I've seen other poets kind of do it, one-off poems that I really like, but out of Margaret Atwood's entire output, I feel like her, like, dry, sardonic voice really, really makes for amazing poetry that's really, like, meaningful and impactful. Like, if I want to convince somebody of something using a poem, which I feel like is one of poetry's chief concerns and things that it can do, I think Margaret Atwood is one of the masters of that art, so. Tell me about uh, the uh, the second poem you're going to read for us today. Oh, yeah, um, so... <clears throat> This poem is entitled, The Dying Man Writes a Cookbook. So if the last poem was sweet and sentimental, this one is just kind of sad. Um, so I feel like death is kind of a hard thing to kind of wrap your mind around. You know, it's something that, it's a conversation that we don't want to have. And it's certainly not one that I love having. Um, this year, um, as a portfolio submission for Scholastic, which is something seniors are allowed to do, where they send in eight pieces of work, I submitted a portfolio about how we, um, kind of react in the face of death and specifically our like huge desire to leave legacies behind us because a lot of times a lot of the things we do on earth now aren't like explicitly designed to make us happy but they're kind of designed to like give us a legacy afterwards like people who want to be rich and famous yeah in part like there's a luxury to that lifestyle but in part you're also wanting to make sure people remember you 
But there's this like really weird kind of paradox or hypocrisy with that because you want people to remember you so badly, but you're not going to be there to enjoy it. I mean, wherever you go, you're not going to be back on earth seeing people shout your name out again, right? So we're so obsessed with remembrance, even though it's like not a thing. And so I remember like I had this conversation with myself. I was like thinking what's going to be in my obituary. And I was like, so like fascinated by that, which is like really dark and morbid, but I was just thinking. And then I had, and then I was like, why do I care? I'm not going to read it. You know, I won't be there. Uh, They could say whatever they want. Not my problem. And so it was that conversation coupled with um, me sitting in my organic chemistry class. Spoiler alert. Sorry to my teachers in organic chemistry, but I'm not very good at it. So I was like sitting in class. We were talking about like artificial sweeteners and um, this like motif of like artificial sweeteners replacing like real sugar something like fake that lasts a while representing like this like real vitality um that like seemed like a really perfect motif and so so sorry to miss olsen if you were listening to this but in that classroom i I heard the word saccharin and i just started writing this poem and it turned out really really well and i was really into it so please yeah (laughs) without further ado um the dying man writes a cookbook ingredients Saccharin. The FDA reported that artificial sweeteners, by saccharin, your pulse, may lead to cancer and an inexorable punctuation mark. To be a child is to be sugar water. All natural, no genetic modification, a testament to the power of potential energy. You'll use a healthy serving of saccharin in your dish. Your veins are too tired to fuss with kinetics. A kid cuisine. You wish you had a cuisine. A real cuisine. Its ancient syllables would trickle down parched lips and onto the tiles of your Oma's kitchenette. You never had an Oma. This cookbook won't age well. Its dust encases lungs, coughs out a story, a heritage even, but its plot has been described as overly saccharine. Boring. Go to the supermarket, aisle 16 by the hungry men, and pick up a kid cuisine for your great-great-grandchildren. Don't worry about the sugar content. It's all artificial anyways. Ibuprofen. The FDA reports that saccharin, my heart beat, your crystalline veins, raises blood sugar. You don't know about all of that, but all this legacy talk is giving you a headache. Recipe. There is no way to sugarcoat what's been lovingly dipped in saccharin. You are boring because you are boring. You are drill boring hole through family tree, a testament to the power of potential energy. There have been about 75,000 generations since the dawn of primordial men. Wars waged, armies conquered, old blood dripping from sugar-rotted teeth, all to create you, you, an inexorable punctuation mark. Follow these instructions carefully. Sprinkle saccharin on my tombstone. Give this cookbook to my Oma. Smash my teeth in while you're at it. Christian Butterfield, uh, thank you for 
being a national student poet, for representing Kentucky so well, and for being a, a, a bright, uh, wonderful young man who has uh, such a future ahead, uh, whether it's in uh, <coughs> writing narrative, uh, poetry, or organic chemistry. Thank you for yeah. being here. Thank you so much for having me. It means so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.